If you would, I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 18. As we continue on in the Gospel of John this morning, we'll be this morning in John 18, verses 28 through 40. And as you've probably noticed, the main theme of this service has been the, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, and uh, that's going to be our main focus as we, as we look at this text, though we, uh, though we will see some other things as well. But we'll be spending uh, most of our time considering this, this reality of, of Christ's kingdom. So if you would, let's, uh, let's look to John chapter 18, beginning verse 28. John writes under the inspiration of the Spirit. He says, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death, to fulfill the word of Jesus which he had spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Now, as we look to this text, we'll uh, have two main points. First of all, Christ's kingdom is not of this world. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. And secondly, we'll see the hypocrisy and the irony of those who handed Jesus over to Pilate. So we have Christ's kingdom is not of this world, and then the hypocrisy and irony. Now as we considered some last week, John doesn't tell us everything that the other gospel writers do in his narrative of Christ's betrayal, arrest, and the road to the cross. He, as we saw, passed over the trial before the Sanhedrin, that trial in which Jesus affirmed that he indeed is the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One. It was this declaration, as recorded in the, the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that sealed the deal as far as Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin 
were concerned and sealed the deal and demanded Jesus' death. But the problem was that they were a subdued nation under the authority of Rome, and as such, they had no power to carry out capital punishment on their own. What they needed then was to get the Roman authorities to sign off on it if they wanted a death sentence against Jesus. And so what the Jewish leaders needed at this point was a way then to get the Roman authorities on board with the death sentence against Jesus. And so if they just walked up to Pilate and said, we want this man to die because he claims to be the Son of God, he claims to be the Messiah, that probably would be insufficient grounds as far as the Roman government was concerned to get involved in executing Jesus. And so in order to get the Romans on board with this, they had to paint Jesus as a political threat to the empire. And indeed, that is exactly what they did when they took Jesus to Pilate. John tells us here of how the Jews took Jesus to Pilate and how Pilate asked what their accusation against him was. And the Jews answered, they said, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate was not wanting to get involved, wanted them to take Jesus and judge him according to their own law. And they replied in essence and said, we have. He deserves a death sentence, but we can't kill him. And you notice there in in verse 32, we have one of these asides that is sometimes characteristic of John. John says uh, that this was to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was to die. And if you think back through what we, what we see in the Gospel of John, we see Jesus alluding sometimes to, to the Son of Man being, being lifted up. Think back to John chapter 3. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Talking about crucifixion. This was the Roman mode of execution. And so the Jews, therefore, delivering Jesus over to Pilate means that this is going to be a Roman execution, therefore fulfilling The word that Jesus spoke signifying by what kind of death he was going to die. Now in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 23, 2, we have an additional detail that when the Jewish leaders brought Jesus before Pilate and accused him, they said, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. This was what they needed to do in order to get Pilate to go along with them. Again, they needed to paint Jesus as a rebel against Rome, as a threat to the peace and order and stability of the empire. And so, in handing Jesus over, they give Pilate a mixture of lies and a half-truth. Jesus, of course, is not misleading the nation. He was not forbidding the people to pay taxes to Caesar. He expressly said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But in truth, he did proclaim himself to be the Christ, And as the Christ, he is a king. And if he is a king, then at least potentially he could be construed as a threat to Rome. And so this is the point around which Jesus' conversation with Pilate revolves here in these final verses of chapter 18. Are you a king? Jesus tells him what his kingdom is like and so on. And it is also at this point upon which the Jewish leaders press in against Pilate as they lobby for the death sentence. And we'll see, we'll see more of this, Lord willing, next week in the early verses of chapter 19. 
And so having already been told by the Jews that Jesus is a king, Pilate asks him in verse 33, he says, are you the king of the Jews? But Jesus can't really answer this question with a simple yes or no. For him to say no would be false, because he is a king, he is the king of the Jews. But for him to simply say yes, with no further explanation, would certainly give the wrong impression to Pilate as to what kind of a king Jesus actually is. And so Jesus tries to talk to Pilate about this. He, he asks him, are you saying this on your own initiative or somebody else tell you about me? But Pilate is very frustrated and very aloof from all of this. He wants to uh, keep his distance and stay back from it. You can hear his disdain when he says, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you over to me. What have you done? Pilate's not interested in Jewish religious questions. He's not interested in Jewish religious controversies. And so in one sense, to Pilate personally, it makes no difference whether Jesus is the Christ or not. He doesn't, he doesn't care. But still, he does want to know what's, what's going on here. As one writer expressed it, there must be something behind that virulence of the Sanhedrin's animosity, even if it is unclear. And a cynical Roman governor in a political hotbed like first century Judea was unlikely to be swayed into thinking that the Jewish authorities would take such pains on someone intent on doing damage to Rome unless their own interests were at risk. In other words, Pilate had been around long enough for sure to know that the Jews are not great friends of Rome. Why were they going to all this trouble to hand over someone to Rome for execution the only thing about him was he's stirring up trouble against Rome. You would expect that this would be the kind of man that the Jewish leaders might be aiding and abetting, maybe undercover, but nevertheless, this might be their man. This wasn't making too much sense to Pilate, so he wanted to know more. He needed to know more in order to do his due diligence. So, so he asked Jesus, what have you done? And Jesus proceeds to tell him what kind of a king he is by telling him what kind of a kingdom he rules. And so he says there in verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Now let's consider here what Jesus says. He says, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this realm. In saying this, he's in a way, telling Pilate that he's not the threat to Rome that the Jews are making him out to be. The Jews are trying to paint him as some radical revolutionary who claims to be a king and is therefore in rebellion against Rome. They're saying he's a threat and must be dealt with decisively once and for all. But Jesus is trying to show that though he really is a king, he's not the kind of king that the Jews are trying to make him out to be. His kingdom is not the kind of kingdom that the Jews are trying to paint in presenting him to Pilate. And the evidence for that is that his servants don't fight to prevent his arrest. Of course, as we've seen, one of them tried, but as soon as he did, Jesus told him to stop it, and he healed the man whom Peter had wounded. Jesus is conveying to Pilate that he is not the man and his kingdom is not the kingdom that the Jews are making him out to be. And so Pilate seizes on what Jesus says, kind of pounces on it. He says, so you are a king. He might, might be getting somewhere, might have something to go on. 
And Jesus replied by saying, You say that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. As we know from the Gospel of John, Jesus is full of grace and truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He came into the world to bear witness to the truth, the truth about God, the truth about us, the truth about us being dead in our sins, the truth about the way to salvation. And indeed, all who hear the truth listen to the voice of Jesus. They listen to him and they respond in faith. And this, in a way, is, is Pilate's opportunity. Right? He's got the Son of God in the flesh right there before him and, in a way, inviting him to a consideration of the truth, a consideration of the truth to which Christ came to testify. And instead of sincerely asking more questions to see what the truth was that Jesus came to testify about, Pilate simply asks a cynical, seemingly rhetorical question. What is truth? As if you can't know the truth. Sounds postmodern, doesn't he? And I, I say it was a seemingly rhetorical question because he didn't appear to stick around for the answer. If you, if you look at the text, verse 38 tells us that when he had said this, he went out again and said to the Jews. And so he, he, uh, he asked the question and it seems like right away he, he's out of there. He's, he's not interested in, in any kind of dialogue with Jesus about the truth or specifically the truth to which Jesus came to testify. But nevertheless, the words of Jesus still stand firm. He says, everyone who is of the truth hears his voice. It's a good question for us to consider this morning. Are you of the truth? Are you listening to his voice? Are you paying attention to the testimony which he came to give, as recorded in Scripture? Those who are of the truth listen to Jesus. Those who are not of the truth will not. And so this morning, listen to the truth. The truth of who Christ is, the truth of the kingdom he came to establish. Jesus says here that his kingdom is not of this world, it's not of this realm. Now what does this mean? Well, first and foremost, it means that Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom. All who are in this kingdom are citizens of heaven. and Which is why Paul can say in Philippians 3.20, that our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Being a spiritual kingdom, it also means that the weapons of this kingdom are not the carnal weapons of the sword. Therefore, we find in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, that though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The kingdom of Christ is an internal kingdom as Christ reigns within the hearts of his people and changes them. Therefore, we read in Romans 14, 17 that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, these external things, but it is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And we read of what Jesus said about the internal nature of this kingdom in Luke 17, 20, and 21, when he said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is, for the kingdom of God is in your midst. 
Now, this is not to say that the kingdom of God is absolutely invisible and that it cannot be seen at all. It could be observed by those who had eyes. And therefore, Jesus said in Matthew 12, 28, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Indeed, that was what Jesus was doing. He was casting out demons by the Spirit of God. Therefore, the kingdom of God had come upon them. And those who had eyes to see it could recognize that the kingdom of God was there. And indeed, that's what Jesus announced at the beginning of his ministry, as recorded in the Gospel of Mark, Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. And indeed, this is the fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy in Daniel chapter 2 that our, our brother Jeff had, had read for us, where we find in Daniel 2.44 that in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. And if you remember back to that, that reading in Daniel chapter 2, you have this, this statue that Nebuchadnezzar had seen in his dream. It has a head of gold, a uh, midsection of uh, the chest and the arms of silver, the midsection of bronze, and then the legs of iron. Statue represented four world powers. Babylon was the first. Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. Then came Persia, then came Greece, then came Rome. And Daniel said that in the days of those kings, God will set up a kingdom. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom. That is when there's a stone that's cut without hands that strikes at the foot of that statue, brought the whole statue crashing down, but then that stone, which seemingly small, then grew, became a mountain that filled the whole earth. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. This was the prophecy that God himself would establish a kingdom. It starts small, almost in hidden ways, and then it grows. It gets bigger, eventually encompassing the whole world and Christ reigns over it. And indeed, this is, uh, this is what we find in, in 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul is, Paul is working up to speaking about the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, he says of Christ, he must reign until all his enemies are put under his feet. From that chapter, we find that the last enemy to be destroyed is, is death. And then when it is, that is when Christ returns and the dead are raised on the last day, then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. This handing over of the kingdom to God the Father marks the transition from the kingdom as it now is with Christ reigning in the midst of his enemies. He's got a lot of enemies. Death is still not yet subdued. He's reigning, though, in the midst of them. But when Christ returns, and death is defeated in the resurrection, then will mark this transfer to uh, the kingdom as it will exist eternally. One writer wrote, speaking of that reality, and he said of that time, the warrior king's goal will be achieved and his last task as the last Adam completed. Death will die in the resurrection and the spiritual bodies of Christ's people will then be able to follow him into the consummation. And in the end, at that consummation, when the seventh angel sounds his trumpet, it will be said the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever. It's Revelation eleven fifteen. 
And so this is the kingdom of which Christ is king. In short, we can say of Christ's kingdom that it was inaugurated at his coming. It came not with the usual beginnings that accompany the beginnings of earthly kingdoms, not with, not with violence, not with toppling of heads, but it came with signs of spiritual power as demons were being cast out by Christ by means of the Spirit of God. This is a kingdom that manifests itself inside of a person as they submit to Christ as Lord. And then, obviously, that submission to Christ manifests itself in the life of such a person, the life that he or she lives in submission to Christ. They live on earth, but they are citizens of heaven, and they live like the citizens of the heavenly country to which they are going. The warfare that they fight is a spiritual warfare with spiritual weapons, For as Paul says in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. But this kingdom, though having an apparently small and insignificant beginning, will grow. And it has grown. The history of the church has shown us that. And in the end, this kingdom will outlast the kingdoms of this world and will triumph over the kingdoms of this world when Christ returns and completes the victory by defeating and destroying the last enemy. And Christ will reign forever. This, this is Christ's kingdom. It is a kingdom which is not of this world, it's not of this realm, just as his people are not of this world. But, nevertheless, Christ's kingdom is in this world just as his people are in this world, right? We're in the world and not of the world. I think we can say the same of the kingdom of Christ. It is in this world, but not of this world. Now, having established the the spiritual and eternal nature of Christ's kingdom, we need to pause for a moment and consider the, the interplay and the interaction between Christ's kingdom on the one hand, and the kingdoms of this world on the other hand. Being as it is a spiritual and heavenly kingdom, and his people being citizens of heaven, first and foremost, some have seized upon this general truth and have argued from that starting point that therefore it is inappropriate for Christians to serve in the government. And so, for instance, this was the historic position of the, of the Anabaptists, who uh, I guess we could say are the, the forerunners of uh, what we know as the Mennonites today. And so, uh, for instance, the, uh, the Schlettheim Articles of 1527 spoke very clearly about this. They said that it is not appropriate for a Christian to serve as a magistrate because of these points. The government magistracy is according to the flesh, but the Christians is according to the spirit. Their houses and dwellings remain in this world, but the Christians are in heaven. Their citizenship is in this world, but the Christian's citizenship is in heaven. The weapons of their conflict and war are carnal and against the flesh only. But the Christian's weapons are spiritual against the fornication of the devil. The worldlings are armed with steel and iron, but the Christians are armed with the armor of God, with truth, righteousness, peace, faith, and salvation in the word of God. Now, though Schlettheim articles don't explicitly quote John 18, you can see how someone could potentially take a text like John 18, my kingdom is not of this world, it's not of this realm, and run with it in the same direction that the Schlettheim articles were running, making the case that it is inappropriate for for Christians to be involved in the government. 
Now, while that might sound really extreme, and probably nobody here, I would guess, is strongly tempted in that regard, one Christian commentator on these matters recently observed, we are all practical Anabaptists now, it would seem, or at least conservative Christians are expected to be. And what that observation is getting at is that there is, at least in some quarters, a pressure that is put on believers to check their Christian convictions at the door before serving in the government, or shall we say, before entering the voting booth. There is, in some quarters, this tendency to think that it is somehow unloving for a Christian to, shall we say, wield the levers of power in government, or that to do so is somehow contrary to the meekness and self-denial that should characterize us as Christians. There's a pressure to think that it is neither winsome nor loving nor wise nor just to seek to legislate morality. And so some would say, well, we're not Anabaptists, so of course Christians can serve in the government, but they better not bring their Christian convictions to the table when they do their governing, and so on. Now, what can be said to this? After all, Christ's kingdom is a spiritual and heavenly kingdom. It is not of this realm. His people are citizens of heaven. Wouldn't it somehow be a violation of this fundamental truth concerning Christ's kingdom if a Christian were to govern, or even on a lesser level, to vote according to Christian convictions? Wouldn't it be a violation of the spirituality of Christ's kingdom if Christian legislators were to attempt to legislate according to Christian convictions. Isn't neutrality, or at least a near approach to neutrality, the best thing for everybody in a pluralistic society? Well, here's here's the deal. Someone's morals are going to be codified into law and enforced. Someone's are. Those morals will either be in line with biblical truth, or they will not. It's going to be one or the other. In the wisdom that the Lord gave to him, Solomon said, Proverbs 14, 34, that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Now, obviously, the best of governments, the best of leaders can't do anything to change someone's heart, cannot force anyone to believe in Christ. Any attempt to coerce faith is doomed to fail. But... What a government can do is act as a check upon evil. That's exactly what it is ordained of God to do. Paul expressly calls the governing authority in Romans 13.4 a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And we're also told in the Psalms that the wicked freely strut about when what is vile is honored among the sons of men. And David cried out to the kings and judges of the earth, as we sang earlier this morning. He says, Therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. And think of what David was considering as he said that. He was talking about a conspiracy of nations and peoples and rulers who were taking counsel against the Lord and against his anointing, saying, let us tear off their fetters, cast away their cords from us. And David says, no, you don't do that, kings and judges, because God only laughs at your plans. You repent of your ways before the Lord speaks to you in wrath. 
And please don't misunderstand anything of what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that the kingdom of Jesus needs the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of Jesus will get along fine under the worst of conditions in regard to civil government. Jesus has promised that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. How much less than the evils of civil government. The kingdom of Jesus is under no threat when rulers of the earth engage in schemes and the nations are trying to rage and throw off the cords of the Lord. He who sits in heaven laughs. And so what I'm saying here is actually the opposite, that the state, that is the government, the kingdoms of this world, need to submit themselves to Christ for their own benefit. J.C. Ryle, I think, put it well. He said, Christ's kingdom can get on very well without them, but they cannot get on very well without Christ's kingdom. And inasmuch as we participate in the government through voting, or if perchance we ever happen to serve in governmental function, we need to be thinking in these terms. Now, I realize that uh, speaking in such a way as I have uh, would get me labeled as perhaps some kind of a crazy person. I, I understand that. But I think we would all do well to step back and, and recognize for a moment that the live and let live civil policy of the modern Western liberal order is a far cry from what our Protestant and evangelical forebears believed was good for society. I'll just, just give one brief quote from Charles Spurgeon, for example. Spurgeon said, that is what the state ought to do, submit itself to God and obey his commands and give full liberty for, to the preaching of the gospel. Now, certainly more could be said, but we will pass on. And so I say all of that to say that Christ's kingdom is a heavenly one, that our chief citizenship is there in heaven with Christ, and this need not discourage us from seeking the good and the welfare of the civil state in which we live in this realm. But first and foremost, our citizenship is in heaven, and our heavenly citizenship is under no threat at all from Satan or from the worst of his worldlings. Now, let's notice, secondly, here in the text, the, the hypocrisy of the Jews and the, the irony of the situation into which they had gotten themselves. On the one hand, they were very extremely scrupulous, very persnickety, if you will, about following the law. When they brought Jesus to Pilate, they were very careful not to enter into the praetorium, the place where Pilate was staying when he uh, came to work in Jerusalem. Usually the Roman governor of Judea would be at Caesarea and not in Jerusalem. But he would come, to, come up to Jerusalem for the big feasts because he knew there would be a crowd there, maybe some uh, unhelpful things going on as far as the Roman government would be concerned. And so he wanted to be there to keep kind of close tabs on the situation, make sure everyone was staying in line. And so these Jews then, to maintain their ritual purity so that they could eat the Passover, they made very... Uh, they were very careful when they, when they went to the praetorium to make sure that they didn't enter the building where Pilate was, lest they become unclean through too close of a contact with a, a Gentile and the unclean place of a Gentile. And you can see this playing out in the narrative if you track what John is saying here, that, that Pilate's doing a lot of moving around. He's going into the praetorium to talk to Jesus. He's going back out to talk to the Jews. You can, you can see uh, some hints of this in verse 29, verse 33, verse 38, and then uh, down in chapter 19, verse 8. Pilate's moving around quite a bit to accommodate these Jews who won't come in to the praetorium. He has to go out and talk to them, and he has to go back in and talk to Jesus. 
back and forth he goes. And so the Jews are very scrupulous about this aspect of the law. After all, Passover was a big deal. This is one of the the three main feasts of Judaism when the Jews were commanded to to go up uh, to Jerusalem. Now, some interpreters of this passage have been a little bit puzzled at what exactly is going on here in the text in that Jesus and his disciples had eaten the Passover meal the night before. Right? This, is, this is early Friday morning. They, they had eaten the Passover meal on Thursday night. And so why are these Jews still concerned about being able to eat the Passover? Now, different solutions have been proposed to this, to my mind, the, the simplest and most likely possibility is that when John references the concern of the Jews that they be e- able to eat the Passover, he is not speaking of the initial Passover meal, the, the eating of the Passover lamb, but rather that he is speaking in such a way so as to include under the term Passover the entire feast of unleavened bread. And Luke, uh, to that point, Luke 22.1, notes that the feast of unleavened bread is called the Passover. And in particular, these Jews may have been concerned with, uh, with what is called the Kagiga, which was celebrated on the 15th of the month, which would have been the first full day of the Passover feast. And so that would have been the, uh, the meal that they were intending to eat that Friday. And it seems that on that day there would be additional peace offerings that, that were offered, and uh, then these would be eaten by the priests and by the worshipers. I think we see some reference to that uh, in Second Chronicles 35 when the Passover was celebrated under King Josiah. You see a great reference to many things being slaughtered, and it's not simply Passover lambs that are being killed there. They're sacrificing bulls and all kinds of things and getting ready to have a, a national feast. And so I would say that this is what these men seem to be concerned about, and therefore that's what's keeping them from entering into the praetorium. Very, very persnickety about this. But what are they doing in showing up at the door of the praetorium in the first place? They were taking part in the rebellion of Psalm 2. These rulers of the Jews were taking counsel against the Lord and against his anointing, saying, let us tear apart their fetters and cast their cords from us. They were seeking to condemn an innocent man. They were seeking the execution of the eternal Son of God. But hey, right? let's, let's give credit where credit is due. At least they would be ceremonially clean so that they could eat the Passover. Right? It's no wonder that Jesus said in Matthew 23, called them blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too, outwardly, appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This was the Pharisees. This was the chief priests. They could be very conscientious about the details of ceremonially cleanness, but when it came to, say, rebelling against the Lord and against his anointed, it was no big deal. At least as far as they were concerned, it was the path of duty. And on this point, it has been observed that an aggressive zeal about small or ceremonial matters often goes hand-in-hand with a crass disregard for the weightier commandments of God. And that's no good. Obviously, everything God has commanded is important. And therefore, Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, when they were doing the small things but neglecting the big, he said, these are the things you should have done. 
without neglecting the others. So just for us, let me put this into context, it's great to be thoughtful about having biblical church government and biblical practice in regard to the ordinances, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and so on. But in pursuing those things, always need to make sure that we don't leave out the weightier matters of the law. We've got to make sure that we don't swallow any camels along the way. We have to do so making sure that we're truly loving God, truly loving our neighbor. We have to make sure that we're not falling prey to immorality and dishonest. Let's make sure that we are always maintaining those things that are of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. You see what I mean? We have to obey God in all that he has said, and we must never become so fixated on one thing so as to neglect something else. These men here were doing precisely that. And we also see a bit more hypocrisy and and irony as well in their conduct in the closing uh, closing verses of the chapter. Pilate, uh, so far, isn't isn't biting on the hook that the Jews have, have baited for him. He talked to Jesus... He doesn't see any threat to Rome. Yeah, he's a king, but, but whatever. His kingdom is not of this world. His servants are not fighting to prevent his arrest. Okay, let's, let's just turn this guy loose. But at the same time, Pilate wanted to please the crowd. And so he wanted to see if there was a way that he could release Jesus and at the same time at least save some face with the Jewish people. And so he has an idea. If it'll work, he can release Jesus and maybe uh, placate at least some elements of the Jewish population as well. And so there was this custom that the Roman governor would release a prisoner to the Jews, and so he asks, hey, we've got this custom, can I, can I release Jesus as, as this prisoner? He's got, got no reason to execute Jesus. Hey, let me just release Jesus to you. Mark 15.10 adds the detail that Pilate knew that the Jews had handed Jesus over to him out of envy. They were envious of, of Jesus. They envied his popularity. They didn't appreciate his teachings. And so that was, that was behind them handing Jesus over. And Pilate, Pilate knew this. And so Pilate's question is directed toward the crowd of the Jews when he says, do you wish then that I would release for you the king of the Jews? The crowd responds, not this man, but Barabbas. Again, Mark 15 adds uh, another detail, Mark 15, 11, that the crowd had been stirred up by the chief priest to ask for Barabbas. This was not something that came to their own minds naturally. This was, this was something that had been planted. And they said, yeah, let's ask for Barabbas. And so what we see is that the chief priests are pulling the strings here and running the show. They're whipping up the crowds and trying to, to back Pilate into a corner to get Jesus killed. And They ended up being very successful on all of those fronts. And the irony here is rich. Jesus had done no wrong. Priests claimed that he had blasphemed, but Jesus had actually told the truth about who he is. They wanted Jesus to die, but instead of Jesus, they asked for this man, Barabbas, who is described here as a robber. Given the context, it seems likely that he is not just not just a petty thief out pickpocketing people at the, uh, at the feast. This guy seems to have been an insurrectionist of some kind, a Jewish freedom fighter kind of figure. In other words, Barabbas seems to be the exact kind of threat to Rome 
that the priests were trying to paint Jesus as. But the innocent man is condemned and the guilty man walks free. Now, I'm not suggesting that Barabbas ever came to saving faith. I have no idea whether Barabbas subsequently believed in Christ or not. But let's notice here, at least on the physical plane of things, that there's a remarkable picture here of substitutionary atonement. A clear and guilty sinner walks free, and Jesus takes the condemnation. Beloved, this is a picture of what Christ has done for us. Because we are the Barabbases of this world. Guilty, imprisoned, awaiting certain judgment. But of his rich mercy, the God of heaven releases prisoners because of what was accomplished at that particular Passover in Jerusalem when an innocent man, the innocent Son of God, was condemned to die in our place. Now this should fill our hearts with thankfulness and joy and devotion to Jesus Christ who has taken our place and has died for us so that our sins could be forgiven, who bore our sins in his own body on the tree so that we would not have to bear them anymore. We were helpless in sin. We were dead in our sins. And God, rich in mercy, was great in the love with which he loved us. He made us alive in Christ. He canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees which stood against us and was hostile to us. He took it out of the way, nailed it to the cross for us. It's done for. Hallelujah, this is good news. So what do we do with this? Romans 12.1 Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You can see what Paul does there. He starts in the all throughout Romans. He's been laying out the, the mercies of God. He showed us our sins in the opening chapters of Romans, describes the effect of the, the ministry of Christ in uh, Romans 4 through Romans 11. Then he gets to Romans 12.1. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, in view of all these mercies that we've been considering, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Or, as the hymn writer would say it, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And so, may we all give ourselves freely and willingly to Christ in the day of his power. And if you have more questions about what it means to to trust in Jesus, to turn from your sin, to seek forgiveness, you can talk to me or you can talk to another Christian whom you know here. We would love to tell you more about what it means to serve Christ freely and willingly. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that Christ's kingdom is not of this realm, that you have transferred us from the, the domain of darkness, from the authority and power of Satan. You've taken us, snatched us away, redeemed us by the blood of Christ and have brought us into his kingdom. Father, we pray uh, that we would not chafe under his authority, but that we would serve him willingly, lovingly, and freely. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.